One year ago, he learned the truth. You're a wizard, Harry. And his first year at Hogwarts school became legend. And so, for Harry Potter and his friends, another year begins. Bloody birds are menace. Their education in the magical arts continues. Pixies. Laugh if you will, Mr. Finnegan. See what you make of them. No! <laughs> Old rivalries grow stronger. Slytherin's got a new seeker. Malfoy. You'll never catch me, Potter! And something in the school's dark past will be awakened. The Chamber of Secrets has indeed been... Opened. Unless the culprit is caught, it is likely the school will be closed. Harry Potter must go home. Oh dear, we are in trouble. Here's the plan. You disguise yourselves as Crabbe and Goyle. Are we going to drink that? Yes. Harry? Ron. Excellent. This year... Warner Brothers Pictures presents... How dare you steal that car! The next chapter of Harry Potter. Where the past will return and the struggle for the future of Hogwarts will begin. Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. Let us hope that Mr. Potter will always be around to save the day. Don't worry. I will be. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Is It Yours, the movie review program where we place every movie up against the Jaws scale to see where it lands. I'm Paul Spitaro, and I am joined by my Harry Potter people, Dave Weeder. Hello, hello. <laughs> I was wondering, did, did I lose you? And Holly Weeder. Hello. Hello. How are you guys doing? We're getting by. Now our dog wants in on the action, too. So. Oh, that's, don't worry. Mine will be looking to get into it, too. So at some point, the three <laughs> of us can relax and have a drink and let them take over. There you go. Sounds like a plan. But I'm glad you guys are able to be back with me again as we continue on our journey through the Harry Potter movies. If my memory is correct, see now, as we're recording this, just to pull back the curtain a little bit, uh, we're months past when we recorded our Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone episode, but it still hasn't actually posted yet. Uh, <laughs> so when, there'll probably be some months in between the two of them. But if I remember correctly, I think we all ranked Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone as a solid Jaws 2 uh, and, you know, we were all pretty high on it, unless yeah. my memory is mistaken. No, your memory is still intact. Okay. The, the, the dementia hasn't sank in that far yet. <laughs> but uh, so now what we're going to do is we're going to do our show on Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. But I want to, every time we do a Harry Potter movie, I want to then rank them against each other a little bit. Because I get the feeling we may find ourselves in the same general vicinity with a lot of these. So I don't want to just say, oh yeah, Jaws 2, Jaws 2, Jaws 2. I want to say Jaws 2 and it ranks above this one and below this one. That kind of thing. So each one we add to the mix, we'll, we'll put them in an order. And our orders may vary because we're not going to compare notes beforehand. 
Nope. So let's start off with what's your history with Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets? <laughs> well, I remember it coming out in theaters, but it also came out a year after the first one, the same holiday season as Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers. So I didn't go see this one in the theater. I caught it on a home video a few months later. And I was growing in my Harry Potter fandom, and it, it, this one kind of blew my mind. This is where it started to really solidify for me. All right. Same story for you, Holly, or are you different? I actually, I don't remember when I first saw this movie. Um, I know I didn't see it in the theater. It had to have been home video at some point, but I don't, I honestly don't remember when. <laughs> yeah, I actually, for me, this one has a similar story to the first one where I, uh, I read the book, then I listened to it on cassette. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we were still cassette at that time. We weren't CD just yet on the, uh, the audio books. And then I saw it, and I do not have a clear memory of whether I saw it in the theater or if I saw it at home, and I suspect I saw it at home. That's, that's my best memory of it. But I do feel like this one for me, I guess much in the way that you're saying, Dave, it kind of solidified it a little bit for me. Uh, as much as I enjoyed the first one, I did have a sense that the first one was not for me as the intended audience. Uh, this one had more of an all-ages feel than the first one. The first one I thought was aimed at, at a younger audience, but something an older audience could still enjoy, whereas I felt this one mm-hmm. was aimed more at all audiences. And my, my feeling, and I don't want to get too ahead, too ahead of the game because we're going to stick with this movie, but my feeling is with each movie, they kind of upped the maturity level a little bit. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, yeah. <laughs> to, the point, like, to the point where the third one kind of did the opposite of what the first one did. The first one was kind of like it was okay for all ages, but it was definitely aimed at an older audience. Of all of the Harry Potter movies, this is the one that I feel is the most all ages. I kind of see that, yeah. It still has a lot of fright factor, but it's not too scary. Where third, progressively, the movies just get more and more scary. Definitely yeah. get darker. Yeah. So you have to consider your, you know, am I taking this kid? Uh, how are they going to react to this? So you, you got to the point where it was definitely something you went into trepidously with your children. Yeah, this one opened in 2002. So it's hard to believe this is already 15 years ago. Oh, you're killing me. <laughs> That's, trust me, it's killing me too. Uh, I might as well give the plot before we start going into the specifics. This is a fairly long synopsis. Harry Potter spends the summer with the Dursleys without receiving letters from his Hogwarts friends. Harry is desperate to return to Hogwarts as soon as possible because the Dursleys have been treating him very badly ever since he got home from his first term. In his room, Harry meets Dobby, a house elf, who warns Harry bad things will happen if he returns to Hogwarts and reveals he intercepted his friend's letters. The Dursleys lock Harry up, but Ron, Fred, and George Weasley rescue him in their father's flying car, a Ford Angela? I think. Uh, Angela, I think. Okay, I'll I'll take you on I'm not really sure. (laughs) While purchasing school supplies, Harry and the Weasley family encounter Rubus Hagrid and Hermione Granger, and they attend a book signing by celebrity wizard Gilderoy Lockhart, who announces he will be the new Defense Against Dark Arts teacher. Harry also encounters Draco Malfoy and his father Lucius, 
who, sip, who slips a book in Ginny Weasley's belongings. When Harry and Ron are blocked from entering Platform 9 and 3 quarters, later revealed to be Dobby's doing, they fly to Hogwarts in Ron's father's car, crashing into the Whomping Willow upon arrival. Ron's wand is damaged, and the car ejects them out before driving off. Both boys narrowly avoid expulsion when Professor McGonagall gives them detention. While serving detention with Lockhart, Harry hears strange voices and later finds caretaker Argus Filch's cat, Mrs. Norris, petrified, along with a message written in blood announcing the Chamber of Secrets has been opened. Enemies of the air, of the air beware. McGonagall explains that one of Hogwarts' founders, Salazar Slytherin, supposedly constructed a secret chamber and placed inside it a monster that only his heir can control to purge the school of impure-blooded wizards and witches. More attacks occur over the course of the year. Harry and Ron suspect Malfoy is the heir, so Hermione suggests they question him while disguised using Polyjuice Potion. Their makeshift laboratory leads to a disused bathroom haunted by a ghost, Moaning Myrtle. When Harry communicates with a snake, something Salazar Slytherin could do, the school suspects him as the heir. On Christmas Day, Harry and Ron learn that Malfoy is not the heir, but he mentions that a girl died when the chamber was last opened 50 years ago. Harry finds an enchanted diary owned by a former student named Tom Marvolo Rivel. Riddle, excuse me, Tom Marvolo Riddle, which shows him a flashback of 50 years before, where Riddle <laughs> framed Hagrid, then a student, of opening the chamber and accused his giant pet spider, Aragog, as its resident monster. When the diary disappears and Hermione is petrified, Harry and Ron question Hagrid. Professor Dumbledore, Cornelius Fudge, and Lucius Malfoy come to take Hagrid to Azkaban, but he discreetly tells the boys to follow the spiders. Lucius has Dumbledore suspended in the Forbidden Forest. Harry and Ron find a now aging Aragog who reveals Hagrid's innocence and that the dead girl was found in, the bath in a bathroom before giving a small clue of the chamber's resident monster. Aragog then sets the co his colony of Acromantula on the boys, but the now wild Ford Anglia saves them. A book page in Hermione's hand identifies the monster as a basilisk, a giant serpent that instantly kills those who make direct eye contact with it. The petrified victims only saw it indirectly. The school staff learns that Ginny was taken into the chamber and convinced Lockhart to save her. Harry and Ron find Lockhart exposed as a fraud, planning to flee. Knowing Myrtle was the girl the basilisk killed, they take him to her bathroom and find the chamber's entrance. Once inside, Lockhart uses Ron's damaged wand against them, but it backfires, wiping his memory and causing a cave-in. Harry enters the chamber alone and finds Ginny unconscious, guarded by Tom Riddle. Riddle reveals that he used the diary to manipulate Ginny and reopen the chamber. When Riddle creates the anagram for his future new identity, I am Lord Voldemort, from his full name, Harry realizes that Riddle himself is Slytherin's heir, and Voldemort was only a pseudonym. After Harry expresses support for Dumbledore, Dumbledore's Fawkes flies in with the sorting hat, and Riddle summons the basilisk. Fawkes blinds the basilisk, 
and the Sorting Hat eventually produces a sword with which Harry battles and slays the Basilisk, but he's poisoned by its fangs. Harry defeats Riddle and revives Ginny by stabbing the diary with the Basilisk Fang. Fawkes tears heal him and he returns to Hogwarts with his friends and a baffled Lockhart. Dumbledore, reinstated as headmaster, praises them and orders for Hagrid's relief, release. Dumbledore shows Harry that the sword he wielded was Godric Gryffindor's own sword and says he is different from Voldemort because he chose Gryffindor House instead of Slytherin House. Harry accuses Lucius, Dobby's master, of putting the diary in Ginny's cauldron and tricks him into freeing Dobby. The basilisk victims are healed, Hermione reunites with Harry and Ron, and Hagrid returns. In a post credit scene, Lockhart has published a new autobiography, Who Am I? The End. <laughs> ah, that was a mouthful. Yeah, it yeah. was. But, uh... You know, I mean, I guess there's a lot going on in this movie. How? What was the run, the running time? Is it 161 minutes, according to Wikipedia? I don't remember it being quite that long. It doesn't feel like it, at least. Right. I'm wondering if that may be a uh, like a director's cut or something, because well, that's I mean, two hours and 40 minutes seems awful long. Let me check the IMDb page on that. IMDB has it as, where is it? Stupid ads coming up on the page, excuse me. There it is, two hours and 41 minutes. Wow. So yeah, it, it is It is a uh, a fairly bouncy two hours and 41 minutes. I was going to say fast paced, but it's not like that action movie where you really see it as fast paced that way. But I guess there's always something going on and there's never a point where your interest wanes. No? And that's what no, makes that's... it seem long, shorter than it really is. Well, Holly was pointing out that she was comparing the book to the movie that you, the way they structured it, they threw things out of sequence a little bit, but they, they made it lose the feel for the timeline that it's a school year. So it feels like it moves faster because you're not aware of how much time is actually passing. Mm-hmm. And that didn't click until you said the runtime. I didn't realize that's actually kind of brilliant. Yeah, I agree. And uh, it's it's just like I said to me, this was the most family friendly one of the movie. Or yeah, the most family friendly because when you're saying family friendly, you're including you know parents and children. Because like I said, I think the first one was a little bit more simplistic, and I felt like this one had a little bit more of that element of wonder that you want in these movies, or at least that you wanted in the first two. You know, we talked about how how they start to get darker, and when we get to uh, Prisoner of Azkaban, we'll we'll talk more about the tone of that movie as compared to these, because the tone does change dramatically. Uh, but this one, like I said, well, as far as the magic and everything, I really felt that this one had that sense of awe and and something about it where it really captured the feel of the books more so than the first one did, in my opinion. I could see that because it felt a little bit colder. It didn't lose a lot of the warmth of the first one completely, but you felt the castle was a little bit more lo- looming and well, that environment. I, yeah, I think part of it is is the almost the Whomping Willow. Yeah. <laughs> which, which is almost a character unto itself. Yes, very much so. And and I, you know, I thought I thought the animation on it was fairly well done. Uh I don't really watch 
movies like this and and start to say you know how does the cgi look how does this look it's just if it can if it can pull me in and i'm not really paying attention to that then it's succeeding so i can't sit here and say oh the cgi was beyond what they were doing at that time or anything like that but to me it just when you combined what they did visually with the foley work and you know the sounds that you got from it and everything it really did have that threatening feel about it and i think it was it was a well done special effect and like i said it almost had a personality of its own i was going to say the car. It, yeah, yeah they both emoted somehow so you could actually feel that they were upset or cranky and that's something interesting with anim- inanimate objects yes very much so um we you know we added a couple of new people to the cast uh, i think the most notable well, not necessarily the most notable, but the first one that comes to mind for me is Kenneth Branagh. <laughs> and he was not really what I pictured when I was reading the book, but I thought he he made the character his own just the same. Right. Yeah. Well, I know they were throwing around Hugh Grant as a potential Gilderoy. That would have been a good one. Yeah. I think he would have been, and I think he would have been a little bit closer to what I pictured in the book. Right. Uh, I almost pictured like a modern day Errol Flynn type. Yes. Yes. <laughs> You know, you know, and I'm trying to think of who would fit that, you know, maybe even more so than you, Grant. You, Grant, is closer to that than Kenneth Branagh, but, you know, maybe like, like, an, like an English uh, Robert Downey Jr., if there's somebody who would fit that description. Jude Law. Yeah, You know what? Yeah. I think you got it. I think that, yeah. that would have been the casting based upon the book. But just the same, I thought Kenneth Branagh, as I said, I think he made the character his own and the movie didn't feel any the lesser for having somebody who wasn't what I pictured when reading it. No. He he overplayed it and it made it work. Right. He definitely had the sleaze factor in there. <laughs> but they, I mean, they toned down some of Gilderoy's flounciness and outfits and being in everybody's way a little bit, but I can understand that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, you know, you, you didn't want him to take over. You didn't want him to try, you didn't want him to steal the movie. Right. You wanted him to remain a supporting player, but to kind of steal the screen when he was on it. Not only did did he do that, but the the other actors' reactions to him was <laughs> was fantastic. When you have Snape and McGonagall and even Dumbledore looking like, no, you, you got to stop, dude. <laughs> you gotta... Yeah. Well, and you could see where he wasn't pulling the wool over anybody's eyes, and that was something that was a little, I guess, a little uneven because you know he would just do such stupid things like the Pixies. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, it was just so obvious that he was full of crap. And yet you'd have, you know, like, uh, what's it called? The Weasley's mom, uh, you know, like fawning over him. <laughs> and Hermione. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Hermione had a huge crush on him. <laughs> and, and, and Emma Watson nailed it. She just, this is a simple look in the bookstore. It's like, oh, mm-hmm. you could see her crushing hard. And just mo- moving along with new characters, uh Another guy who ended up being a key player and really just kind of chewed up the screen a little bit in his own right was Jason Isaacs. Yes. As yes, Lucius yes. Malfoy. He was perfect. Yeah, he really was. And he was exactly what I pictured when I read the book. Yeah. I, I would say he embodied that role. This, And I, I don't think I can come up with a better compliment than this, much in the way that Alan Rickman was Snape. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> you know, there was just... Something where you just wanted to dislike him so much. 
at least early on. And, yet, Snape, and that's, you know, and again, we'll, we'll get to Snape, Snape's redemption later, but at least <laughs> at this point you hated Snape. Yes. yes, but he's so fun to watch. Both of them just, are. Yeah, just the way he would be, Mr. Potter. <laughs> you know, the way he'd just deliver the lines. I mean, you'd, you know, you, you just know, you know, and his, his frustration that they weren't uh, expelled after coming into <laughs> the school. And, and that kind of goes a little bit, it's a little bit of an inconsistency, I guess. Uh, as far as what his ultimate motivations were, but he, you know, he couldn't, could not hold back his dislike for Harry's father and how much Harry reminded him of his father. Now, uh, I guess from the other character point of view, we also have Dobby, who is kind of a half character, half special effect. Yeah, it was a million bucks every time he appeared on screen. <laughs> they hated him. That's why you saw him phased out a little bit more as the series went on. Which I think harmed the series overall, but that's just me. <laughs> he, he was an interesting character because the more time you saw him, the more you liked him. At first, it was just like, oh, he is so annoying. Mm-hmm. And then there was a certain amount of charm that just kind of came out of him as it went on. And like I said, the more you saw him, the more you liked him, especially towards the end of this when Lucius is maltreating him and Harry engineers to get him free. And there's, there's just the joy that goes with that and everything, you know, it's just, uh, you know, for, again, for a special effect, he, he was wonderfully done. Well, they also got a, an actor, kind of like Gollum, a contemporary movie at the time for this one. They got Toby Jones, who went on to play Arnim Zola, who is an extraordinary actor. And he mm-hmm. put in a real full performance, so they had something to work with. And yet he's not credited, at least on the Wikipedia page, he's not credited yeah. at all. I don't know. I didn't find out until long after the movies were out of the theater. Yeah, I, I actually was unaware of that myself. So that's that's a, a nice little tidbit there. Uh, yeah, but he was he was really entertaining. I'm trying to think: is there anybody else that was new that we hadn't seen before? Uh, Mr. Weasley. Yeah, Arthur Weasley. An- another very well cast role. Yeah. Uh, probably a little bit more subdued than he is in the books. Agreed. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a little bit more of a. Uh, I'm just trying to think of the best way to describe it. He he's willing to let things go by. I think in the books he's just a little tougher. Yeah. Right. I mean, because in the books you get a real feel about him being more involved in the ministry, actually doing well at his job. Uh, people look down of him down on him because he's in Muggle. Uh, aficionado. Aficionado, but but he's still respected wizard. Um, and they kind of took that out a little bit, and some of his excitement about Muggle artifacts and, and how things work, and <laughs> you know, he kind of took that out a little bit, and how he had written some of the laws to protect Muggles. But I can, I mean, but it, he still had that joy. And, yeah, you know, when he finds out the boys took the car. <laughs> oh, how did? Oh, yeah, I got I got to be stern here. <laughs> hey, just looking uh, at the IMDb page, Toby Jones is credited. Okay. For Dobby, but he's only credited as the voice. They don't mention anything about him actually doing the acting. What they would do is he would go in and show them how he would play it. And then they had a little person go in and do the actual, you know, stand it. So they had a, a performance on how Toby would have played it if he was actually in the scene. And I, again, I didn't know this until we, we got the, the Blu-ray set, the deluxe. And there's a lot of special features and it blew my mind. Because he would, he would go out and perform it, and then the, the stand-in would 
follow his motions, and then right. he'd come in and fill in the voice. But it's not like they had motion capture or like no. those special suits or anything at Correct. that point, so they couldn't do that yet. Now, was Julie Walters, did she just appear in this for the first time, or was she in The Sorcerer's Stone? I'm trying to remember now. She, yeah, she was she, in The Sorcerer's Stone. She was in The Sorcerer's yeah. Stone. Yeah. Oh, she, um, she, Julie Walters plays Molly, right? Yeah. Yeah. She was there because she was at the platform. She was in a very brief scene. Right. Okay. And Professor Sprout, I think she's new. I think... I can't remember if she showed up in the first one or not. I mean, if you see, if she showed up, she didn't do anything. Yeah, I don't like, remember in the first one. It, it's interesting, and then we're, we're already entering the zone of this, where each one is its own story, but they do kind of just blend into each other. Right. I, I think, you know, if, if you have the time and the energy, this you, you could sit and just watch these in a marathon and, and be comfortable just going all the way through from uh, year one to year <laughs> seven. And we have. <laughs> okay, there we go. So, so my my theory is is uh, has borne fruit. Well, we uh, here we had Potterfest. A local theater played all seven movies across a weekend, and it was it was fully decorated. They had butter beer. We did a deluxe package, so we got total. You know, we got fed. Uh, they had a great hall, so we actually did a whole weekend just immersing ourselves in Harry Potter. I'd be up for that. Yeah. <laughs> Only once. <laughs> it was a lot. It, it took it out of oh. me just to sit and watch movies. Oh, I'm sure it did. And, and and the problem is with me, you know, if I watch movies long enough, at some point I'm going to doze off. But that's besides <laughs> the point. So uh, let's let's talk a little bit about our returning actors. Uh, we'll start off with the, the key three, Harry, Ron, and Hermione. Uh, what did you think as far as their development as actors or their maturation here it was a pretty decent step up right especially considering they filmed these back to back i mean well at the really at the same time kind of um but they had already started to grow and uh, like at the end whenever um, whenever like lucius malfoy is in dumbledore's office and then that's kind of the first time that um, Daniel Radcliffe starts to ad-lib a little bit, like Jason Isaacs turns to him and he's like, let us hope Mr. Potter will always be around, and he glares back at him and he's like, don't worry, I will be. <laughs> that was all ad-libbed, you know, so they're starting to feel their groove, if you will. Well, I'm sure being around all these professional actors and great actors, renowned actors, rubs off. Yeah, you would think, and in you're getting direction not just from the director, probably from your co-stars as well. You know, I'm sure in, in the in-between filming scenes that they're getting pieces of advice from, you know, people like Richard Harris. I mean, mm -hmm. how how much better than that do you get? Yeah. Although he was really sick at this point, so he wasn't around as much, unfortunately, because he died soon after. Yeah. Well, you could but, see uh, in his performance a little bit that he he was weak. Right, and I think had he lived longer, he would have had difficulty uh, portraying Dumbledore the way he needed to be portrayed in the, uh, well, certainly in the fifth and sixth movies. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. There, there's no way he. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but he still just looked perfect. I mean, he again, perfect casting. 
He looked perfect, and he sounded, he sounded perfect. His voice was Sound. absolutely perfect. Right, yeah. And who else do we have? Obviously, uh, we have Alan Rickman. Again, superb. Just, I, I can't... Every, every, yeah. <laughs> every one of the movies, though, I could say exactly the same thing, because you don't... To me, you don't see any variation in quality. It's just all terrific from him. You can say that about pretty much any Alan Rickman performance. That is true. (laughs) The movie may be crummy. The movie may be crummy, but he's marvelous. There's certain actors that I point to and I say, I've never seen a bad performance from them. And most of them are older actors uh, and older than Alan Alan Rickman got to be, unfortunately. Um, I I point to Gene Hackman. I point to Robert Duvall. And there's a Mm -hmm. a handful of others. That I say, I've seen them in bad movies, but I've never seen, seen them give a bad performance. And I would say the same is true for Alan Rickman. The only difference is I can't say I've seen as many Alan Rickman movies as I've seen with those people. I was thinking about that the other day. He, I keep placing him in movies that he wasn't in. <laughs> I feel like he did a whole lot more movies. And he really only has, I mean, I think under 100 credited to him on IMDb. Because he started acting later in life. Yeah, and he was he was also a stage performer. Right. Yeah, I mean, besides Harry Potter and Die Hard, uh, you know, to me the the other quintessential Alan Rickman performance is Galaxy Quest. Yes, yeah. yes. <laughs> and that was yeah. one he could have phoned in, but didn't. Oh, his his frustration level as as he's <laughs> playing that role is just so much fun to watch. What was that story you told me? Uh, fan, I mean, fans were lining up to to meet Alan Rickman after a play, and he was signing autographs, and they were telling him how much they love Harry Potter. And this person who was telling the story, and it was on Twitter or somewhere, just kind of stumbles up and says, "Galaxy Quest was great." And Rickman just smiles and says, "Yeah, that was a great movie." It does his autograph. <laughs> totally, totally not ironic. Mm-hmm. Now, if only he could have said, "By Grantham's hammer, I will avenge you." Yeah, <laughs> then it would have been perfect. Uh, who else do we have to highlight here now? Uh, okay, now one one of the things I can give you, I, I kind of had two negatives here, and one is clearly a uh, J.K. Rowling writing thing, and that would be why did Hagrid send them into the spiders where they were going to get killed? <laughs> because Hagrid doesn't realize that beasts are dangerous. It I mean, got them nothing, though. <laughs> it gave them a direction, because then so they knew they minor. weren't looking for a spider. But yeah, yeah. Okay. It's, yeah, that's your direction. It's it's not us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like that 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 just seemed to me like I mean I know Hagrid is is a a very simple person. Yeah. But even he should have been smarter than that. He put his faith in the wrong beast this time. <laughs> Yeah, well, that was that was one of the plot things that I just didn't care for in the movie that much. The other part is the exposition scene in the uh, was it the Bloody Cauldron or whatever the name of the place is? Leaky Cauldron. Leaky Cauldron. Leaky Cauldron. When you have Hagrid sitting there, what was it with McGonagall and the Minister of Magic? Like, I'm not, like I'm not recalling this scene. When they when they talk about uh, about oh no, you know what? I'm thinking I'm in the wrong movie. 
Oh, gotcha. Okay. Uh, that's the scene. That's the scene in the Prisoner of Azkaban. I was gonna say, is that Prisoner of Azkaban? <laughs> that's what I'm thinking of. So, so that's not a negative in this movie. That's a negative <laughs> in the next movie. Uh, yeah, because I just, I, I just could not acclimate my mind to the fact that those three would be out for a drink together. True. And and we'll we'll talk about that more when we get to the Prisoner of Azkaban, because <laughs> that is a negative for me in that movie. Uh, yeah, that. So I guess that's really kind of it for my negatives is, is is more just in that that one plot point of why would Hagrid do that but otherwise this is really solid everything about it I think it, it sets the tone uh, you know I talked about how I think it's a little bit more family friendly but there is also that sense of foreboding that's there it's just not graphic enough that you'd be afraid to have children see it yeah but you know things that are going on with the people turning into statues effectively or just you know becoming uh, into some sort of you know stone coma uh, petrified you know, yeah petrified uh, you know I, I could see where that could be the stuff that you know could be of a small child's nightmare well don't forget the giant snake that's and an then, adult's and nightmare and then I was going to say and then, and then the uh, the basilisk and the spiders <laughs> and the spiders yeah two of the our spiders, fears are in this know, movie <laughs> to me the spiders once Arrow, whatever his name is, starts speaking. It almost takes away some of that fear level of it. It almost makes it seem cartoony, and I think I say that in a positive way, because it, it doesn't seem silly, but it does just take it to the point where you start feeling a little less re- that it's a little less real. So I think it's a little less of something that would give you nightmares because of that, if that makes any sense at all. I don't know. Holly's the one scared of spiders, so. <laughs> Well, I'm not a big she, fan myself, but like I said, once once you start hearing the spider speak, it just kind of, I don't know, it just kind of let me, okay, I could just ride along with this. It didn't have the same fright level that it could have had. and But like I said, I think that's a positive because I didn't, I don't think, you, you weren't trying to make a horror movie here. I you were trying know. to make a, a, a fantasy adventure. Maybe once Aragon stops, stops speaking and then all of his family starts coming at him and coming down from the tree and that starts getting a little um it does get somewhat intense (laughs) but i also think the car comes in fairly quickly and doesn't it doesn't leave the audience too long to to have that level of of suspense and and fear that's true i did not know until now that aragog was voiced by julian glover from indiana jones and the last crusade and i didn't know it until you just said it yeah, and of course, Empire Strikes Back. He was Donovan. Yes. He chose poorly. <laughs> yes, he did. And and he sounds, I mean, in his regular voice, he sounds nothing like okay. like Aragog. But oh, that's kind of cool. It's sometimes it's interesting that they would hire somebody of you know any kind of renown to to voice a character like that because you would think you know anybody could come along and do it. Yeah, in this movie though, they've got a blank check. They know they're going to make their money back, so. <laughs> Well, speaking of which, and I'm looking on the Wikipedia page now, did you see what the dollars and cents were on this? I did not. Okay, well, you could forget the cents, because it's just dollars. Uh, the budget, uh, do you have a guess, or do you want me to just give you? I think it was just around $100 million for production according alone. To, according to Wikipedia, it was a $100 million budget, at, which at the time was probably average for a big-budget movie. Mm-hmm. It wasn't like, oh my God, they spent a hundred million on this, but it wasn't, you know, it was, you know, a fairly substantial budget. 
the box office and let me go to box office mojo because I just don't want to take a chance that I'm only getting uh, that I'm not you know I, I, I like to break it down to domestic and foreign so here we go total domestic gross any guess opening week I mean it was over 300 million I mean it made 450 million so give me my guess okay Holly I don't have any idea <laughs> okay well according to Box Office Mojo, if it can be accepted, uh, you're overestimating it a bit. The but the domestic gross was two hundred and sixty-one million nine hundred eighty-eight thousand. Excuse me, yeah, two hundred and sixty-one million nine hundred eighty-eight four eighty-two. Yeah, nine hundred eighty-eight thousand four hundred eighty-two dollars. Uh, so that is better than two and a half times its budget. So that just domestically itself, Yeah, that in and of itself would make it a hit. Now foreign. This movie was apparently quite popular overseas because foreign gross is six hundred and sixteen million nine hundred nine hundred ninety-one thousand one hundred fifty-two dollars. That's a bit of a jump. Yeah. So <laughs> well, 70, of course you've got seventy percent of its gross was from foreign from the foreign market. Yeah, it, it doesn't break down the British market as opposed to other countries, but I'm sure a substantial amount of that is from Britain. So overall, worldwide, Man. it made eight hundred and seventy-eight million dollars. Almost eight hundred seventy-nine. That's, I would say, by any standard, that's a hit. Yeah. <laughs> and the thing and is, I, they progressively go up from there. And I think this is when the Harry Potter copycat movies started coming out too. You know, all these, all these other movies, kind of theoretically based on children's stories. You know, mm. uh, Narnia and Percy stuff like Jackson. that. Yeah, yeah. series Jackson. of unfortunate events. Yeah. I didn't think about that. Yeah, that's when they realize there's money in this. <laughs> there's a hell of a lot of money in this. But yes, there is. <laughs> by the time by the time this movie came out, I think we were pretty close to having the fifth book out. And I think there they should have been an understanding of, hey, look at how these books sell. <laughs> you know, you just get some other property. It's not necessarily going to take off the way this one did. So, you know, if they were smart, they would hedge their bet and, you know, find a property like that, but maybe not invest the same type of budget into it. It actually would have come out shortly out. Yeah, because it was between the second and third book. It came out in spring of 2003, right in there. And of course, there was a delay between the second and third movie, so it did fall right between those two. Which, what was that, the fifth book? The fifth book, yeah. Okay, yeah. Well, I do remember, like I said uh, last time around, I remember when the first, before the first movie came out, I remember seeing people with the uh, Goblet of Fire. And I was curious about it then, and, and eventually became totally consumed with reading all of these books. By the time the fifth one came out, I, that was when I got into the, uh, the the mode of I pre-ordered them from Amazon, and I would have them arrive at my doorstep the day that they were released, and start reading immediately. So by then, by this time, I was totally hooked. Yep, I was wrong. June twenty first of two thousand three. Okay, so about seven months after this one. So yep. still still in between. Oh yeah. I just remember seeing the book the book five, uh, Order of Phoenix just coming across my because I worked Best Buy when we sold the books. <laughs> and mm. I just kept seeing it come through my line, like, what is this book? I just kept <laughs> seeing it over and over and over and people were like, I can't believe you have this and they'd run out gleefully. Yeah, I remember well, my was, friend going yeah. out and buying it at midnight. So <laughs> Yeah, that's what when when you know, people were afraid of the shortage of them and 
they'd have to go out and get them as, as soon as they came out because otherwise they would be afraid that they didn't have them. And uh, a store like Best Buy was like a refuge for people because people weren't automatically going there. You know, it wasn't like Barnes & Noble where they'd s actually sell out. So they, you know, they would have extra copies at, at Best Buy because a lot of people didn't know to, to look there for them. So what kind of themes do we have in this movie that they played on as far as Harry and his people and Voldemort? I guess, you know, the first aspect of it that came to me was we're starting to get the, uh, the feeling for the Horcrux mm -hmm. that, you know, that there's different ways that Voldemort is looking to come back. And at this point, I kind of had the thankfully mistaken impression that this was going to be the whole series. Every time it was going to be Voldemort trying to come back and Harry thwarting it. Mm -hmm. And I'm thankful they didn't go that route. That right. by by the uh, you know by the fourth book, you know we saw <laughs> you know that they were that they were going to go a different direction. But I, at, at at this point, I thought this could get tired after a while. And I thought they might just, you know, exploit that a little too much and lose their steam as they went along. Which, again, thankfully, they didn't do that. Yeah. We also have the theme of temptation. Because you have Ginny being tempted by the the uh, diary in which, you know, Voldemort fell to temptation. And Harry, being able to speak parcel tongues, kind of in that same boat. Where, I mean, one of the themes is he chose to be in Gryffindor. He made that choice. He chose differently than Tom Riddle did. So it's you've got that idea that this could go either way, mm -hmm. especially at that age. I mean, 12 years old, there's a lot ahead of you. There's a lot of choices to be made. Yeah, and like you said, I mean, see, Ginny partially was the temptation of the diary, but then partially was being manipulated against her will. Mm -hmm. Right. So you know that that was an interesting aspect of it. Now at this point, do you think there was? Do you think she had actually, and by she I mean J.K. Rowling, had actually foreseen at this point that Ginny was going to be a love interest for Harry? I don't think so. I think that portion wasn't settled till further down the road. Uh, because I, it would have been well, book wise, yes. It would have because um, with the books that were coming out at that time, I think she would have known. So around the fourth book, I think it was starting to settle in. Well, I mean, as she wrote this story, as she wrote this story, I don't think so. Yeah, I think it could have gone either way. I mean, you know, between I think at this point they're not really into boys and girl world yet. I mean, so it wasn't really a focus in the book. Yeah, but I, see, I think as far as and this is pure speculation. I've never heard J.K. Rowling say anything on the subject. I think she had Hermione as kind of a red herring that, you know, of course everybody's going to think, you know, she's the lead female, he's the lead male, they're going to end up together by the time they're adults. Mm -hmm. And I think she knew from the start that she wasn't going to do that. But I also think she wasn't sure where she was going to send Harry as far as that goes. I know that she was focused more on Hermione, not as a love interest. She didn't want her to be just another girl love interest. She wanted her to be a smart girl, which is hard to find in books. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I like my my speculation is that she wanted Ron and Hermione to be equal in their relationship with Harry. Like neither one had the edge over the other. Right. 
And that's why I think I think early on she kind of decided by the time it ends they will be a couple. But Maybe. I don't like I said I don't I don't I don't know that she knew where she was going to have Harry. But I would suspect, like you said, by the time this movie came out and the fifth book came out, I think she knew then that she was going to put him to put him with Ginny. And I think, if I remember right, in book six is where you start really having that develop mm-hmm. uh, for Harry, not for yeah Ginny, of course. <laughs> um, well, she me... she's enamored with him from the start. Oh yeah, yeah. But you know, you you just kind of dismiss that as a childhood crush at first, right? Mm-hmm. Or just you know celebrity awe because he is you know he's a well-known celebrity not by intent but he is really legendary in the wizarding community what'd you think of uh moaning myrtle in this that actress is confusing because she's playing a young girl but she's definitely not i mean she's she's somebody in her in her 30s um i will never unhear her voice at universal florida if you go to the bathrooms there's a loop of Moaning Myrtle talking. So now, retroactively, I watch this movie and I get a little bit uncomfortable. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I was in Universal, Florida, but I did not hear the Moaning Myrtle voice, and I can't tell you that that bothers me. Okay. (laughs) Yeah, it's in the the restrooms. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe I didn't... I I, I may not have gone to the the men's room in that particular area. So I'm... I, I, like I said, I, I'm I'm okay with that. You're left unscarred, yeah. <laughs> I like the character, though. I mean, just because she's a ghost doesn't mean that she's a nice person. No, she's not a nice person, and she's not a an evil person either. Right. Uh, I think she's she's an angry person. Right. Is what it comes down to, and and part of that is because of the way she died. Yeah. So I can't necessarily blame her. And she's for very her much anger. stuck in that. I mean her age and time (laughs) when she died. She didn't get older or grow or learn, really. And have we been told at this point that the ghosts that you see are kind of, you know, the people who just weren't ready to leave? Not really. They haven't explained that or anything. They're just kind of there. Mm Mm-hmm. And I, I felt in the in these first two movies we didn't get quite enough of uh, nearly head, headless Nick. I think we could have used just a little bit more of him in there. Yeah. Right. They well they skipped his whole death day party, which was in the books, and that was a big deal. Mm-hmm. His we were talking earlier about this movie how they had kind of edited and placed scenes in different uh, timeline. It, you know things happened out of order. Um, well, part of that was the Death Day party, which is Halloween. That's when they first discover Filch's cat, and that's when they first hear about the Chamber of Secrets. And so there was a lot that happened before that to kind of lead up to it. Kind of getting back to themes, this is where we... The, the overall theme is like the division in the wizarding world and how some wizards are better than others and uh, you know, pure blood versus muggle-born, and they have already kind of established that in the book, and kind of hinted at it a little bit in the movie, and then they delve into the chamber being opened and kind of the mystery of it. Here, it's like, here's a little bit of, we're better than you, oh, hey, there's a chamber, and then it kind of bounces around a little. <laughs> yeah. 
No, that's it. yeah. It, it, they definitely start setting that up, but I think in the in the movies it's a little more subtle than it is in the book. Right. Mm-hmm. In the book, they kind of come right out and tell you, but in the movies, it's kind of you know you have to be paying attention or you might miss it. And uh, honestly, I think that helps with the family friendly aspect of it. I think if they went a little too preachy with that, right, it, it would have been a little less entertaining for children. <laughs> What, they didn't want to show Arthur Weasley and Lucius Malfoy get into it in the middle of the bookstore? Just, I mean, because Malfoy insulted Hermione's parents? <laughs> yeah, I can well, see how cutting that out would be okay. <laughs> exactly. Uh, just trying to think of now, what else haven't we discussed yet? Uh, I, for one, didn't really hear much of a difference in the score in this as compared to the first movie. Mm-hmm. Well, it's still John Williams. Yeah. Yeah, it's still John Williams. We still have the main Hedwig's theme. Mm-hmm. And there may be some significant differences just to someone with a keener ear than I or someone who's actually sat and listened to the soundtracks. But to me, it sounded a lot like more of the same, which is not necessarily a bad thing because I think Hedwig's theme is a very compelling song. Right. But I don't know if you guys heard anything different or anything more that I've missed. No. What's neat about the scores is that as we move away, you do start seeing layers of different things. These these first two movies were of a piece with each other. Uh, same director, same you know, same content. You know, they're continuous. Where others, as you see different years come in, different directors, different themes, you start hearing layers. It snowballs. Yeah, even though it's the same director, though, I did feel that there was a lighter tone to this as far as the, probably more in the cinematography than anything else. A little brighter than the first movie overall. I don't know if that if that was your perception as well. Not brighter, no. Broader. It, was, it felt bigger, that there was more space to work with. And I, I don't, I'm trying to think now if, if my recollection is accurate at all but it seems to me or at least it felt like there were more outdoor scenes in this yeah than in the first one and that could lend to the more you know feeling that it was a little bit more of a brighter tone although you you know when you get down into the chamber of secrets it's very dark yeah (laughs) you get to see but it's still big i mean you still feel like it's a huge chamber definitely and and you you get a similar feeling but not repetitive in that it ends with Harry having to take on the final obstacle or the final challenge or however you want to f- say it. You know, in the first movie with, uh, what's it in the, the professor? I, I'm just Quirrell. Quirrell, yes. And, and now with uh, Tom Riddle. And the reveal of Tom Riddle being Voldemort, I thought was a very nice moment in the movie. Yeah, it was well displayed. Yeah, it well displayed, and it, it's just, you know, like, okay, now how's he getting out of this one? Yeah. <laughs> you know, there, there, was, there was a little element of, uh, and, and it's almost a little bit of a comic relief thing that then Fawkes comes in and brings him the sorting hat. Like, what the hell is he supposed to do with this? Exactly. <laughs> which, which is exactly what Riddle says, you know, this, you know, an old bird and, and a sorting hat. What the hell are you going to do with that? <laughs> the, the consequences are dire, yeah. He's facing the darkest wizard with a hat. <laughs> Yes, but all in all, you know, very well paced and and played out, and I I don't want to go as far as to say believable, but certainly plausible in the way that it develops. 
I love the set for the chamber because I, I do believe it's all practical. It's the water helps. It feels cold, but you also feel that you're in an, in another realm. I, I've always been a big fan of that set. What did you think of the uh, the effect of of the basilisk? It it scared me. <laughs> it was it was it was plausible enough that I was a little uncomfortable. Well, it's a big practical um, thing. I mean, they built it. The head, anyway. Yeah. But even when it's slithering down the pipes... <laughs> Practical effect. That's what I'm looking for. Yeah. One of my fears was, you know, I'd be sitting on a, on a toilet doing my business and a snake <laughs> would come up from the drain. So this didn't help that. I'm sorry. I lost my train of thought for a second. That's okay. I didn't mean to throw you off with that. <laughs> you know, Paul's over there. Next time I do my business... I'm yeah, gonna... <laughs> now he's going to pick... <laughs> Okay, so I'm trying to think of what we, if there's anything in particular that we have not touched on. You guys have any more points on this one? We had Dobby. We had the Malfoys. You start seeing more of the the families now. So it's there. You does there is a feeling of expansion. And and it also plays into the divide a little bit with the, you know the the Malfoy or the Malfoys being on the evil side of things and and there's really very little gray area in there they they are pretty much evil and then you know the 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 weasley's on the positive end and you know we get to see kind of the whole weasley family so you know we definitely see the contrast there nothing i could think of that stands out what about you um i i do i mean it's just a small part but i love that we get to see uh, Nocturne Alley a little bit. That's the first time that we get to go down there mm-hmm. and see that there is a whole dark side to the Wizarding yeah. World. You know, this is where it's kind of being introduced a little bit. The seedier side and of things. Just off of the, you know, just over here to the to the side of the alley. Yeah. <laughs> just if you step yeah. off the path. And that's one of the nice things they have at Universal too. Where, oh, yeah. Where, yeah. Where, you know, where, where they have kind of the Nocturne Alley part of it and then they have the regular part as well. And Nocturne Alley is one of the more entertaining aspects. <laughs> yes, and of course there's things for sale in all of it. Oh, yeah. Uh, let's see. What else do we have? I mean, We had Fudge coming in, the ministry. You got, you're more aware of that there is a governing body. Right. So it's, it comes back to expansion that now you're seeing a little bit more, a little bit more, kind of a nice pullback. Mm-hmm. First, first mention you, of Azkaban. Yeah. And I think you're also starting to see, and, it, and they... They kind of develop it slowly, but I think you're seeing some of the incompetence of the Ministry of Magic. I think that, you know, they, they bring mm-hmm. it in slowly, but I think, you know, that develops as it goes on. And not, not only the incompetence, but the impotence of them as far as dealing with Voldemort and his, you know, crew of Death Eaters and how, how well, and easily susceptible they are to it. Yeah. Because Malfoy, I mean, it, it, because he has so much money, people listen to him and he can just kind of push them into doing what he wants and threatening people's families to get doubled or kicked out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it, it, that was one of the things that was unexpected but kind of cool was to to find out, you know, that Dumbledore wasn't really the uh, you know, the supreme power there. Right. You know that that he he takes a back seat to uh, you know to to the ministry who's which allows itself to be bamboozled. 
I do, again, the more I think about it, the more I'm like, wow, they really did introduce a lot more layers to this. You know, yeah. here's, there's a difference in wizarding world. There's, you know, there's celebrities. There's, here's families that have a lot of money and all the stuff that you could possibly want, including house elves and how they're treated. And But here's another family that's just as average you know, average family but they're scraping by and yet they're still pure blood and then there's they're starting to delve into just because you're you have magic doesn't mean that you're like a high class person you yeah. say <laughs> yeah exactly yeah many different levels i didn't think about that yeah there's definitely some class war yeah money still has influence in the wizarding world yeah I think we've kind of beat on this one a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> and we'll go to the uh, the final decision-making here. Of, and as always, the question is, is it yours? And once again, I will give the Jaws scale because I do that every single time we do this. So if you rank it as Jaws, you're saying it's an all-time classic, a great movie, very, very few flaws, if any, and just, as I say, a classic. Jaws 2... Really, really solid, worthy of reviewing, but not quite at that classic level. Jaws 3, entertaining, but nothing special at all. Jaws 4, a bad movie. And I don't remember who went first last time, so I'm going to say, Holly, you go first this time. Um, I'm going to say for me, it's a, it's on the lower spectrum of a Jaws 2. Because it's still very entertaining and very rewatchable, but as a... I guess we haven't gotten into adaptations yet, but it's not really a solid adaptation for me. There's a lot that's been left out. Okay, and, and that's that's just to, to clarify, that's comparing it to the book. Right, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> Do you feel the same thing as a standalone, not, you know, just on its own without comparing it to the book? Do you still put it at the same level? Maybe a, yeah, I still put it at the same level because it's not my it's not my personal favorite movie, but <laughs> I'll rewatch it. <laughs> there you go, Dave. I'll stick with Jaws two right in the middle. I agree, it's not a perfect adaptation, uh, but it's it's every it's basically on level with the first one, without the 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 reveals that you got where everything's the first time in the first one. See now, this is this is what I mentioned that I suspected early on because I'm also going to put it as, as Jaws 2 mm -hmm. but I do have it as a, at a different level of Jaws 2 than, than you guys because I have it as a slightly higher Jaws 2 and I actually rank this one a little above the Sorcerer's Stone because you know as, as I've said so many times I think this one is a little bit more family friendly I think this is more of an all audience movie mm -hmm. I thought this one captured a little bit more of the awe and wonder of the Wizarding World uh, than the first one did. I thought they, the, char the the returning actors, I thought just felt a little bit more comfortable in their roles than they did in the first one. And the new actors, I thought, complemented them well. So for me, this is a fairly high Jaws 2. So I'm going to, I'm going to, and that's how I'm going to rank them. I'm going to rank this one slightly above Sorcerer's Stone. How do you guys rank them in comparison? I'll put it right above the Sorcerer's Stone. It's, it's not far and away, but I think the, especially what we discussed where you have this expansion, you're seeing more of how the Wizarding World as a whole looks, that puts it above Sorcerer's Stone. I'll 
put it. I'll put it even with Sorcerer's Stone uh, because, like you said, well, for me, Sorcerer's Stone was like, wow, everything's so you know, it's all new. But this one has a little bit more. Here's a little more of the everyday life, and I think that's interesting. So different reasons for me, but they get on the same level. Okay. So so for you, it's a coin flip. Yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. All right. So that's it for Harry Potter and the Chamber of Secrets. I will be having Dave and Holly back again when we take a look at the Prisoner of Azkaban sometime in the not-too-distant future. As long as they continue to be willing to come on, I'm going to keep having them. And uh, thank you, everybody, for listening. And thank you, Dave and Holly, for coming on. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Professor, I was wondering if you could tell us about the Chamber of Secrets. Very well. Well, you all know, of course, that Hogwarts was founded over a thousand years ago by the four greatest witches and wizards of the age. Godric Gryffindor, Helga Hufflepuff, Rowena Ravenclaw, and Salazar Slytherin. Now, three of the founders coexisted quite harmoniously. One did not. Three guesses who? Salazar Slytherin wished to be more selective about the students admitted to Hogwarts. He believed magical learning should be kept within all magic families. In other words, purebloods. Unable to sway the others, he decided to leave the school. Now, according to legend, Slytherin had built a hidden chamber in this castle known as the Chamber of Secrets. Well, shortly before departing, he sealed it until that time when his own true heir returned to the school. The heir alone would be able to open the chamber and unleash the horror within and by so doing, purge the school of all those who, in Slytherin's view, were unworthy to study magic. Muggleborns. Well, naturally, the school has been searched many times. No such chamber has been found. Professor, what exactly does legend tell us lies within the chamber? Well, the chamber is said to be home to something that only the heir of Slytherin can control. It is said to be the home of a monster. <laughs>